Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. Hosted by the editors of Writer's Digest, this monthly podcast features conversations with writing and publishing experts whose insights will help ignite your creative vision, hone your skills, build your platform, and get your work out into the world. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Writer's Digest Presents, a monthly podcast of writers helping writers. This month's topic, beginnings. Since this is our first episode, let's introduce ourselves. I'll go first. I'm Amy Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Writer's Digest. Um, I've been working at Writer's Digest since, I guess, 2017 in various roles, first working on, um, on the Writer's Digest books, and then working on the website, and helping out with the conferences, and now editing the magazine. Um, and I love it. Robert, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for next? Yeah, um, I've been with the Writer's Digest team for over 20 years now. Um, started as an unpaid intern just getting college credit uh, back in 2000 and um, was lucky enough to end up with the Market Books group doing a writer's market and I think I worked on every single one when they had like a songwriter's market, artist, graphic designer's market, stuff like that. Um, but now I'm a senior editor and sort of my main tasks are uh, kind of managing the online content, stuff that goes on writersdigest.com, uh, doing our virtual conferences, which are a lot of fun and a lot of great speakers with those. And, um, and then beyond that, I just kind of consider myself kind of like the uh, person who's like kind of the duct tape of the group, uh, doing a bunch of things for, for everybody to help out. So, uh, mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun. And, uh, I guess I'll pass the baton on over to, uh, Mariah now. Thanks. Um, hi everybody. I'm Mariah Richard. I have been with Writer's Digest a little over a year now. Um, and it was one of those things where the company I had been editing for, um, had a massive layoff because of COVID, and I just happened upon uh, WD's um, site, and they said that they were accepting applications, so I applied, and I was sort of hired very quickly. It just, all the stars aligned for it. <laughs> um, so I have had a few roles since I've been here. Um, I started out working mostly with um, the online content, and then this year I had the opportunity to sort of jump over into working more with the magazine. Um, so my role here is really just to um, help our contributors to get their articles ready for publication, help Amy to assemble the magazine and get that ready for print. And I also do still write for our blog occasionally and I assist with competition winner selection. So that's me in a nutshell, and I will pass it off to Michael. Thank you. My name is Michael Woodson. Um, I've been with Writer's Digest just for like four months now. Uh, I was at a children's publisher and um, a literacy nonprofit before that. And then due to COVID, was um, let go and took this opportunity and applied. And I'm so glad that I did. And um, my responsibilities are uh, pretty much a lot of online content with Robert, but I also touch the magazines a little bit. I do a little bit of social, um, and I also help with 
competitions as well. So, yeah. I think this is what I enjoy about our entire group. None of us do just one thing, which is what I like. I thought editors just read writing and edited it before I actually mm. became one. And then I realized that's just um, a small portion of the job. There's so much more that goes into it. And, and for me, that keeps it really interesting. So today's episode is all about beginnings, which makes sense because um, not only is it the first episode of this brand new Writer's Digest Presents podcast, um, but it's also January, which is, of course, when everyone is making plans and goals for the new year. Um, and we're going to have some special guests and other conversations in this episode. But before we get to them, I wanted to know how each of you sort of feel when you begin a brand new writing project. Because I think for me, it is it is a little nerve wracking, not because of like the blank page, but because I'm already critiquing myself. And even though I know revision is a part of the process and always will be, I am still judging my own writing before it even gets on the page. Um, and it's always fine when I have started the draft and I'm a few paragraphs into it. I feel much better about it than I did um, pre-writing it when I was judging. But it's um, actually putting those first few words down that uh, is a little challenging for me. Please tell me I'm not the only yeah, one. For... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for me, uh, it's, I always think of beginnings as a lot of fun. Uh, I try not to hold myself back too much when I get started. I just kind of dive in and uh, see where it's going. Um, a lot of times that can lead to nowhere. <laughs> so, so I have to back back up and start, start again. But uh, I always think the beginnings are like, a lot of fun because of all the, the potential and then uh, the real world or, or my limit of uh, writing ability uh, kind of knocks me down a little bit. And, and and it's when you start getting into the, the middle parts or the uh, after, you know, I do a lot of poems uh, getting into the revision parts where it's like, okay, now that we had the fun part, um, not that revision can't be fun, but like, it's more like, how, how do we try to make this something that I would want to share with somebody um, besides myself? And, um, but the beginning part is always like, all right, yeah, let's go, <laughs> go at it. I'm a little bit different in the way that, um, like, I'm just the super type A human being. So, you know, I need to have a plan for mm -hmm. everything. I am a planner through and through. Um, like, even when it comes to NaNoWriMo, I have never once, like, been a panster <laughs> ever. Um, but for me, the beginning of a story happens, like, way before I get to the page. Um, part of that is just because of the genres that I like to write. I'm very much like a fantasy, urban fantasy, horror kind of writer. So a lot of my world building, um, you know, research, that kind of thing. But it's also a lot of just living in the world inside my head. 
Um, even just, you know, doing my day-to-day -day life, sometimes I'll pause, you know, what would my character do about that? What would they say? How would they feel? Um, and really feeling like I know that world through and through and the way that it makes me feel so that by the time I get to the blank page, I just have to put it down because it's already alive and complete in my mm -hmm. brain. Um, so a lot of my writing actually takes place off the page um, and then I just have to go ahead and go through with it. This is really interesting because uh, I I love starting new projects. Like my favorite part of it is like the first sentence. And um, I think it's because uh, the kind of books I like to read and the kind of books I'd like to write are like what my friends call books about nothing. Like nothing really happens, but like life is happening. Mm -hmm. And um I feel really confident in my first sentence and then I immediately lose track. So like I I I need to do more planning like Mariah saying because depending on the project that I'm doing like with short stories, I I can carry that through to the end, but with um longer when I'm trying to write a book um draft, it's just harder to not plan. Um I can always start strong. I always feel relatively um encouraged by my first like 10 pages and I'm like well that was fun I, I guess that's done <laughs> another unfinished project um but yeah I actually really love beginnings yeah one of the really interesting things on the author spotlight series that we do on the website uh is reading the different answers for like writing process surprises because you really get a feel for like how different writers like some are like really big on plotting ahead of time and some talk about how they just can't do that they have to do the the pantsing method where you know they just they're making it up as they go along and then they might write a whole book and realize they have to go back to like chapter one or chapter three and then yeah. redo the whole thing so, so it's interesting how like for everyone it's like a little bit different and it's so funny when I, um, I mean, most of the writing that I've been doing lately has been for the magazine, so it's nonfiction. Mm -hmm. But um, as I've tried to start novels over the years, I never plan them out. And that makes zero sense to me because I plan every other part of my life like it depends on it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've already planned what I'm having for dinner, not just tonight, but next week. Um, because that's how, that's how I work. And so maybe this is why I struggle so much with getting started because I don't plan the writing that I'm going to do. And it makes no sense. But it, it does. No that actually makes a lot of sense to me because like what you're, what you're describing are things that like you, you, like you need to survive. And so like, I always tell myself, like, I don't have to plan this cause it's, it's not calories I need, but if I want, mm -hmm. if I want this goal to to happen i need to change my um how i do it mm -hmm. the other thing that i found interesting robert you talked about writing the first draft is the fun part and the rev the revising is not quite as much fun for you the revising is the most fun part for me and i think like that clearly makes sense because i'm an editor by 
trade. Mm. <laughs> and so, of course, I would have fun playing with words and moving them around. Um, that's my form of Sudoku, I think. Yeah, and I, and I can have fun with revision. It's just that that first draft, I'm usually, like, especially when we're talking poetry, uh, there's usually like a, an idea or an image that kind of sparks it. And uh, then you're like off to the races, like kind mm -hmm. of writing, or like at least in my case, I'm just like kind of off to the races writing. Whereas the revision, it's more like, like I, I like to play different like word games and uh, like, like I can buy one of those one dollar Sudoku books and like spend an entire weekend just doing Sudoku, which is pointless <laughs> and doesn't do anything for anyone. But uh, I can just like get caught up in that and i kind of feel like revision is like that type of game for me like like the writing parts like this all this inspiration and writing all this stuff out and then the revision's more like all right now we're gonna almost play tetris for people who mm -hmm. have ever played tetris it's kind of a dated uh, reference but just like kind of fitting all the different pieces together and, and the right way um but it's funny yeah. that we all think of it like a game Kind of in that way, like this is yeah. our version of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will say, like going back to like college, that's not how I always thought about it, and and that's a lot of times like I try to tell writers who are really against revision, and and there are a lot of them. Meet them at the conferences and uh, events. Is you know, I, I used to be intimidated by revision because it seemed like such a big thing to do like it's hard enough just to write it and then to go back through and revise it's like I, I always try to say like instead of thinking of it as revision if it helps you like think of it as like recreating the writing that you did and um you know and, and treat it more like treat it more like a game where it's mm -hmm. for fun and I think for me, um, when I was younger, I strived to be like Stephen King, who only ever writes a book one time. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is because I've been a huge fan of his since I was like, an, I think I read The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon in fourth grade. I think that's when like I really started being a fan of his. Um, but I kept running into, like I would get really frustrated with myself because at the end of a draft, the story wasn't quite saying what I wanted it to say. And so I've learned, especially as I have become more um, of an editor, and I, I do kind of think about it as like, I have a writing brain and I have an editing brain, and I have to like trade those brains back and forth like a hot potato when I'm working. Um, but I, I always think to myself like, it's okay if this first draft isn't there yet because the next draft is going to pull out one more layer and then the next draft after that is going to pull out something mm -hmm. else um, and I think the the problem for me is falling into a trap where you can revise something so I mean every time you revise a story you can make it completely different but there has to be a, a stopping point like so I really rely on a group of um, writing friends to kind of tell me like enough is enough the story is done or else I'll just pick at it forever and then no one else will ever see it. Mariah, you make a really good point because I'm also in a writer's group who um, keep me really accountable for my writing. And uh, especially this past year with NaNoWriMo, we would meet and because my issue is just getting hung up on kind of what you're saying, like it not being how I'm visualizing it yet. And 
most recently when we met, they read a part of what I had written that I was not feeling very strongly or confidently on. And my friend Lily said, there is something here, so just keep going. And that was what I needed to hear because at the same time as um, I totally believe in revision, but don't worry about revision until you need to be revising. And something that I have learned, um, I learned it as an editor from like my editing uh, position. But then looking back, I was like, oh, man, this is actually really useful for me as a writer is that um, a lot of times, especially if I'm writing a longer project, I'm actually writing two stories. Um, so I get to a point where I'm like, okay, it seems like the story isn't really going anywhere. I'm not really sure what, like who the story mm. is about at this point. And then I just have to pick, you have to pick one or the other. You can't have both. Right. But in knowing that I've been able to go back to projects that I've abandoned and been like, okay, I, I now more clearly see that this is who the story is about. This is where the story should go. Um, and shuffle that other story off to the side. And a lot of times I've actually been able to reuse mm -hmm. that story mm -hmm. in a totally different way. Um, it might not even be with the same characters or the same setting, but um, the, the fun thing about like a, these kinds of projects is that you can always begin something completely different. Um, you know, if you have to stop a project or if a project is quote unquote failed, you know, there's always room for new growth there. Yeah, that's a really, that's a great point. Yeah, and you can always come back to it. Uh, that's always been my experience. Uh, and and also, like, with, with you mentioning the revision, like, continuing re revising, uh, it does sometimes even go on after you've been published. Uh, my poetry collection, Solving the World's Problems, when I run around speaking and uh, reading those poems at, at different readings. And even like, I'm sure like next time I go do a reading again, it won't surprise me that I'm reading a poem and then make a note while I'm reading. So I've done this before, like a, a, a different, I'll, I'll make a change like right there on the spot. And uh, you know, and, and that's why I always, I always advise people to read their work out loud because you can really catch stuff that makes you stumble. If you stumble when you're reading it out loud, then people are probably stumbling when they're reading it silently. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think this is why um, I always get nervous about reading things in public because um, I do have that inclination to fix things. Um, but I like that you are, you're just improving them. It's fun that poets get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been this has been a lot of fun chatting about beginnings. We have a lot more interesting content coming up in this episode, so stay tuned for more interviews and conversations about setting goals and starting the new year off right. This is Robert Lee Brewer, and I'm here with C. Hope Clark to talk about beginning projects. C. Hope Clark is the author of the Carolina Slade Mysteries, 
the Disto Island Mysteries, and a brand new series just releasing and with a double book uh, release, in fact, is the Craven County Mysteries. She's also the editor of Funds for Writers at fundsforwriters.com, and I want to just thank you for coming on here, Hope. Oh, always lovely to talk to you, Robert. This, this is great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my first question was going to be, you know, like, what are you working on now? But uh, I think you've got an answer already ready to go. I do. I do. I, I'm always working on a novel and I'm always working on funds for writers, but I have uh, a double book release that released November 30th on a new series. And it's a series I've been wanting to do for about five or six years. And I had to twist the arm of the publisher to kind of accept it, but uh, it was, it's fun. So I'm, but, and I just signed a three book contract for three more books in the other two series. So there's always something going on. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. So this episode, when, when I asked you to get on this episode, I didn't know about the double book release, but uh, you know, we're talking about new projects and starting new projects. How do you, like, I know you've written other novels and other novel series. Um, how, how do you go about like putting together like a double book release? How do you even get started on that type of project? Well, I thought it was going to be one book until the publisher said, this is a new series. We're not releasing one book in a series and promising more. And especially in light of COVID, taking one year, two years to get book two. So they said, if we're going to do this series, you've got to give us two. And, you know, this was during COVID, so I had a little more time to write. There was no conferences. There were no book signings. <laughs> There's nothing to do but write. So I dug in, and uh, this is a first for me. This year, we're releasing three books. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. But, I, um, you know, with COVID, I thought I have no excuse not to write. So that's what I did. <laughs> that, that's a great attitude for uh, going through through COVID for sure. <laughs> like, I know I've, I've been all over the map, sometimes writing, sometimes anything but. So, <laughs> so that's great. So so before we talk about some of these other projects, what, what is different about uh, the Craven County Mysteries from... Uh, the other two series that you've done before? Well, I wanted to do sort of a, make this sort of a trifecta. Is I already had an amateur sleuth and I had uh, a law enforcement official in terms of a police chief. And this one is a private investigator. And since it all happens in the lower, the low country of South Carolina, I've covered all three bases and I hope to do a crossover where they all actually meet. The The two protagonists in the other two series have met in crossover books. So this is just kind of bringing it around to cover all bases, I guess. Oh, wow. It sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, it is. Oh, I love these books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fun to write. I'm sure it's a lot of fun to read as well. Uh, I, I love that whole... Like a lot of times people talk about world building for fantasy and science fiction, but I think it's applicable to like old genres of writing. And this sounds like a fun experience in world building for sure. It is. It is. And I, I've, I've designed three different worlds for these three strong protagonists and uh, it, it's fun revisiting them. I was 
just telling someone the other day, they said, oh, I hear you have another book out. Are you going to write another one? And I said, I'm, I'm always writing on a book. Uh, between books, I actually get very bored, just extremely bored. I think I have a routine going now. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, I know. Uh, well, actually, why don't we talk about the routine stuff for a second? Like, does do you feel like that helps you with starting the new projects that you've kind of got that rhythm going? Absolutely. And I, I've preached this ever since I've been in the business is you need to write religiously and not just here and there when you feel like it. Because I think when you keep those those gears oiled, you it's a lot easier to sit down and just pick up where you left off. And I, when I'm writing on a novel, it's a thousand words a day minimum. It wow, doesn't sound like great. much. I mean, to yeah. some people, some people write more, but I can maintain that. Uh, and what used to be difficult in reaching a thousand words, I started off with five hundred. Uh, now I can write a thousand words with without even thinking about it, and it 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 works well. That's great. Um, I know that you do other work with uh, funds for writers, and I know in the past, uh, and I you know I don't know if you still do this, but like you used to do like grant proposals and uh, projects like that. Do you feel like you approach writing novels differently than those types of projects? Or do you think it's like kind of a similar uh, approach that you use for that? Well, I, I think the discipline is the same. I have to set deadlines for the fiction. You know, you always have deadlines for the the freelancing and the grant writing and all of that. They come with deadlines. But when it comes to the fiction, Sure, there's a contract deadline, but you need to have benchmarks in between so that you can get your words in by that ultimate deadline. And, oh, absolutely, I I have to religiously have a schedule set up or or it just doesn't work for me. But that's, you know, that's just me. <laughs> yeah. So so the, the publisher will give you a deadline, but, like, you create your own deadlines of, like, hitting certain targets? I do. I do. It's a minimum of a thousand words a day. And, and I kind of work in a buffer so that if I have to miss a day or two in the, in the mix, I have some breathing room in there. And of course, then I feel the urge to have to go back in and catch up. And I allow for a few weeks at the end for, of course, editing. And then, but it, it, I'm lucky to have uh, a family that kind of supports me. It's, it's, I've got a husband that'll go, did you get your words in today? <laughs> you know, before, <laughs> before he asked me, you know, to go out on an errand or do you want to go see a movie or anything like that? It's like, did you get your words in? And he, yeah, I got my words in. So it's, it's a, it's a job. I, you know, I've, I've turned it into a job, but I think the fiction is a little, um, a little different in that you sink into a new world. And I probably mentally think about it more throughout the day when I'm not writing than I would for nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's great about the support system. Uh, I know I would not be as productive as I am if my wife wasn't always making sure, you know, that, that I'm doing my stuff. So that, that's great. Um, yeah, we're lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely <laughs> are. Uh, yeah. So, um, if, if you're starting something, uh, completely new, let's say like 
a nonfiction project, uh, are, are there things you've found that like, that help you get started from like zero where, where you're not moving on the project at all to actually like getting into a rhythm and moving? Cause it's like one thing to like kind of have your rhythm and, and keep it going, but like kind of going from zero to, to moving. Well, I, I will say when it comes to nonfiction, it's, I will research the market first, you know, who I'm writing for. I want to make sure what they've done before that um, I am in keeping in line with. So I want to be very comfortable in the environment I'm stepping into. Uh, then I do my research and I keep copious notes. I, I can't go anywhere without a notebook. And, uh, and it's, it's messy. I'm uh, probably the only one that can understand it, but I, <laughs> I make notes and I do a loose outline, very loose, because I'm, I'm not a rigid outline person. And then it's a matter of just sitting down and, and creating that opening. Once I can land an opening, uh, it, the rest flows. Nonfiction is a very easy write for me. And I, I think it's because I spent my previous career in more of a technical non nonfiction arena. And uh, the, the fiction is a little harder. But uh, no, the nonfiction yeah, just flows. Once I've got the research, you know, the, the ideas start falling into line. Yeah, it's, it's funny that, that you mentioned it that way. As you start talking about it, I think a lot of times when I'm, you know, doing blog posts or newsletters, it's kind of a similar feel to start off with, like, kind of a loose outline where I know I want to hit certain points. And then, yeah, it's getting that opening. And then once I've got the opening, it's just like, kind of like, it blows out. It does. <laughs> so, it does. Um, so I, I know, like, when I do poetry, uh, poetry is so much different than everything else that I write. Like, I can just see an image or, or have a line pop in my head and I just, I write a poem. But it seems like for everything else, I have to, like, kind of back up for a second, at least have, like, a rough idea of what I want to do and then and then do it. Oh, I, I work the same way. You know, when I fl uh, flip over into fiction, it's, it's like running through mud for me. <laughs> it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm so used to writing nonfiction so fast and so cleanly and uh, fiction takes, it is a more of a struggle because you don't have any, you know, anything's in concrete it's it's all imagination and to you don't just fall into it and it flows you've you've got backstory to work in dialogue to get right you know which characters are in what scene who's not going to show up in the series this time who's a new one you know all of those moving pieces as well as trying to think creatively and give the writer some the reader something that i haven't done before yeah, so, so this is a curiosity question. Um, when we we've do interviews all the time with authors that, that write novels, where are you on the plotter versus pantser spectrum of uh, writing your novels? I'm more of a pantser. I tried plotter from beginning to end one time in the early stages, and it was a disaster because I didn't get five chapters into the book before the rest of the outline was just shot. 
<laughs> I had done so much different. And, and, you know, you get into a chapter and go, oh, that reminds me. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. And so you start heading mm-hmm. in a little different direction until by like five, chapter five or six, the story has taken on a whole new light. I, I can't do it. But what I tend to do is longhand outline just snippets of ideas for what I call scenes, just moving the story along. Sometimes it turns into two or three chapters, sometimes five or six, but I do that to get some ideas down, and then I sit down and write those chapters and see where they go, and then I do it again. So it's a, a hit of an outline, but, but not much. It's not not getting too far ahead of where <laughs> where you're at at right. any given time. It's like like headlights. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> See so far. <laughs> great. Well, I think this is a, a great start on uh, starting projects. Um, thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, I want to let everyone know uh, to find out more about C. Hope Clark. Uh, I mentioned fundsforwriters.com earlier, but also go to her website www.chopeclark.com and thank you so much thank you for having me okay hello everyone Michael here I am sitting down with my colleague and co-host and pal Mariah who we were talking, or we talk all the time, but recently we were talking and it, and I realized that Mariah is the only person on the editorial team who um, received her MFA, went for an MFA program. And as an editorial team, something that I think we all love is that our backgrounds are so different and our, our writing styles and reading habits are so different. And this just conjured up a lot of interesting conversation. And so we thought we would sit down today and talk to you a little bit about the pros and cons of an MFA program. Um, if you are an undecided, soon-to-be graduate, this maybe will help you. It's a conversation that I wish I had heard when I was graduating, because um, I think it would have better helped me make a, a decision that may or may not have had a pretty big impact on my life. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, um, I think that when we were discussing what we wanted or envisioned for this episode... The first thing that came into my mind is that um, when I was in my undergraduate degree getting my, I, so I got my Bachelor of Arts in mm-hmm. Creative Writing and also in English Literature, and my dad's dream for me was that I was going to be the weather girl on Channel 8. Oh! So when I told him that I wanted to go and uh, study writing, that was a total departure, <laughs> and he said... Um, you know, I, I will help you financially with school. You can study whatever you want, but I need you to give me a clear path for mm. how this will help you financially in the future. Wow. Um, because I think that for a lot of us, when we tell our parents that we want to be artists, the starving artist is the first thing that they think of, right? Yeah. So... Um, when I was in school, I, I really didn't know what path I wanted to take. I knew I wanted to write yeah. and I knew I loved it and I was good at it, but I didn't know what exactly that looked like. Mm-hmm. So I thought, Hey, you know, 
an MFA mm-hmm. is a continuation of this process. Um, so I went right from undergrad into my MFA program, which can be a little bit atypical depending on what program you go to. Generally, people take like two or three years between, um, you know, their first degree and their master's. Um, but not always, you know, we had people in our program who hadn't been in school for many, many years. But I guess my, my first question to you is, you know, I know that you were thinking about this kind of program Mm -hmm. when you were in undergrad. So what, what was an MFA to you? What were your expectations around it? Or, you know, what, what did you think the the program would potentially get you or mm-hmm. not get you? Totally. I love the way you put that. Growing up, I'm going to backtrack a little bit with uh, some inside Michael's brain, which was I also like I knew I loved stories. I knew I I loved telling them and reading them and watching them, listening to them. I didn't in- immediately know that I wanted to go into English literature. I thought I wanted to be a film student. And when I went to, um, I, I went to school undecided because I had transferred to a different school and I just missed the, um, opportunity to apply to the film school. And in that period of being technically undecided, I just kind of tried to think about what it is about film that I loved. And it was always ultimately the story. And I just realized like, I, it doesn't have to be film. I'm actually a voracious reader and maybe I want to be a writer. And I was really nervous to tell my parents, which was insane because my mother was a librarian, but I remember calling them from the car once and was just like, I think I decided what I want to major in. And I think it's creative writing. And my mom was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, thank God. I'm like, okay, cool. You're, you're cool with this. Um, and I'm so grateful. I'm so glad it, it was the best decision I could have made at such a young age. And um, then heading into graduating with my bachelor's, you know, MFA programs weren't really talked about a ton. And they were always talked kind of around. And my teachers all, of course, had MFAs. And it was always kind of a throwaway statement. Like, well, if you get your MFA, this, this, this. Or when you go get your MFA, you'll this, this, this. And it was never in line with what I pictured for my career because I knew I didn't want to be a teacher and that's kind of the the sort of the main sentiment was if you want to continue to write and teach then you need to have an MFA program uh, go into an MFA program it just never felt right for me and I think it was truly just because I lacked information on it and um and also because I knew I did not want to teach and I was about to graduate, my good friend Justine McNulty immediately went into an MFA as well. And we were sitting having coffee with a friend who also had gone into this MFA program. And I think there was just an assumption that I had also applied and was going. And I just, I didn't think anything of it. I just said, no, actually, I'm I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm not going for an MFA. And um, the third friend was like, well, you're never going to get a job then. You're never going to be a writer. And I was like, oh, really like (laughs) why do you say that gee thanks yeah and i was like oh i'm i think i'm good actually like i have an interview set up for 
a writing job. And it's just because I think the image of what that looks like for a lot of young writers is very understandably romantic. And I was I was heading into a more professional, like editorial world that I was comfortable um going for while also writing creatively on my own um the stuff that I didn't consider was oh I could my stuff will still be workshopped I'll be writing really often um I'll be learning about different uh styles and and just getting better at my craft possibly so my knowledge of an MFA program really stopped and started with um that it meant I was going to be able to teach and that would offer me time to write more and I think that that is something that um, a lot of undergrad programs fail to realize yeah. is that, you know, I do believe that the MFA is generally um, packaged as this next step to teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly it can be, but it's also a lot more than that. And right. I do want to just put in a little caveat here that I am not an expert in MFAs. <laughs> I have gone to a single program. You know, I've not taught in an MFA. I've not been a director of an MFA. I've not ever been a professor mm-hmm. in any kind of program. Um, but once you're in an MFA, it's this very strange culture where you talk to people from other programs and it's like each one is its own little world. Mm-hmm. And the more that you reach out to people who have gotten MFAs and the more that you compare experiences, there are radically different experiences and there are very similar ones. And part of that is also depends on where you go to school, Mm. right? So I went to school in Philadelphia. I lived in Chinatown. I had a very different experience than my friend who's currently getting her MFA in poetry and she's going to school in New York City and she's living in the Bronx. And it's just a very different um, style, not to mention that she's getting her MFA during COVID. Right. Right. So all of these things um, really change the way that your MFA program, um, you experience your MFA program. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk just a little bit about what an MFA is, yes, because please. what I heard from you is that you thought, well, this is either the only way that I can be a quote unquote successful writer, right? Or it's the only way that I can be a teacher. Yes. Um, so the, the weird thing about an MFA, first of all, it stands for a Master of Fine Arts, which is different from another master's program because an MFA is more craft focused while a master's is much more um, analytical. Mm. So in a master of, say you want to get a master in creative writing, you're going to spend a lot more time reading and analyzing those works kind of the way that you do in an English class. Okay. Um, where in an MFA you spend more time, like you said, that you didn't realize is that you spend a lot more time writing, um, doing your own creative works, which is what I actually went to get my MFA for, because I just felt like as I was nearing graduation, I I was not willing to leave the bubble. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you're in that space where you have deadlines and you yes. have very strict um, expectations for what you need to be writing and when. Um, it 
it keeps you focused fully on your craft. And I wanted, I wanted to meet more writers. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I went to a very small campus um, in rural Pennsylvania and it was very white. Mm. And I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, which was very white. And Mm -hmm. I thought if I get to go and be in a city and be in a city program, you know, I'm going to meet so many writers who have different life experiences than me. Um, I was also closeted until my MFA program. So Mm -hmm. it gave me um, more confidence, more um, like I was able to really write the things that I wanted to write and feel comfortable Mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, I didn't really know any of that when I was applying, right? Because the MFA is, um, it's about two to three years, depending on what program you're applying to. Um, And they do specify on their websites. It's not like a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's also a terminal degree. So there is no PhD in fine arts. When you go for your MFA, you kind of know that that's going to be the end of the academic line for you. Okay. Um, so I I was like, okay, this will give me two or three years of writing, and then I'll have to, quote unquote, enter the real world. You know, <laughs> start adulting. Um, and there. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. So in all of this. I guess, what was your goal outside of that? Like in terms of entering the real world, was part of that wanting to teach? Did you want, did you want any of that? I honestly had no idea. Sure. Yeah, of course. I was, I was open to it, um, but I thought it would buy me some more time yeah. to really um, decide what I wanted to do. Yeah. And it, it did, it did lead me to editing. Of course. Um, And that's because, so the structure of an MFA program, every program is different. Mm -hmm. Um, The number of credits you have to take is different. Of course, if you go to a three-year program, they require more credit hours than a two-year program, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. But there is a general structure, right? So you get one workshop a semester, and a workshop is when you are writing and having other people review your work. Um, And... I just realized that I didn't specify that an MFA program is not just for people who got their BA in, um, or or a BA at all. It usually has to have some kind of undergraduate degree. But it doesn't have to be. Right. You don't have to have, quote unquote, been a writer in school. Um, You know, you could go and get a degree in engineering. Right. Or study public policy. Um, you could have gone and gotten your PhD in, mm. you know, economics, and you can still apply to MFA programs. Um, they are open to all writers. So back to the workshop. The workshop is where you um, are presenting your work to a class and having them respond to it. Um, we'll get into more of that later, but um, the, the next kind of part of the MFA program is that there are a number of craft, manuscript, or special topics courses. Um, Those are all different words for the same thing. Okay. So you probably took craft courses Mm -hmm. in your undergraduate degree. Um, It's basically just an exploration of a specific topic. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, my program had a flash fiction craft course 
And that was the first time that I ever was exposed to or wrote flash fiction. Because uh, in my like earlier academic years, we studied longer right. short stories or full manuscripts. Um, for what we called the special topics class, that was a class that was only offered like once every two years. And that was a journal editing class. Um, oh. So that is how I actually got a lot of my experience that I use in my day job here at yeah. Writer's Digest because we um, we had to like make our own literary magazine from wow. scratch. And I had the opportunity in that class to um, apply and become the editor-in-chief of Tinge Literary Magazine, nice. um, which is based in Philadelphia. And... So, you know, it, it, you get a whole bunch of different experiences with those craft classes. Um, then the next part of the program is generally a number of elective classes. And this is where every program really splits off. Okay. Um, some universities allow you to take electives in uh, courses that are not in your area. So, for example, you might have been able to take um, film classes hmm. as an MFA candidate if your university had those classes offered and allowed you to co-mingle, right? right? It was one of those things where I had my English literature degree, yeah. but I was not prepared for a master's level English lit course. Yeah. You know, it, it was a wild ride. I had <laughs> to take three for my program. So it was interesting. It was interesting <laughs> to be thrown into, <laughs> into that world. And I, I very clearly realized that, like, no, an academic pursuit is not for me mm -hmm. um, because thinking about being a professor and having to publish and things, you know, to get tenure, I was like, no, ma'am. Wow. <laughs> that was not going to happen yeah. for me. Um, so then the, the other two kind of um, not class-related aspects of programs are the comprehensive exam and the thesis. Yeah, I don't so, know anything about a comprehensive exam. Yeah, so this is not anything that I knew until I started applying. Um, and every program is different. So the comprehensive exam is really just a way for the school to um, summarize your learning, right? Um, so it it's either a literal exam mm -hmm. that you have to sit down and you have to answer questions on craft, on um, manuscripts that you've read, um, all those different kind of things. Mm -hmm. In my program, instead of a, an actual exam, the comprehensive exam was a 15-page essay. Okay. And that was really interesting because yeah. we had to write an essay on our thesis without mentioning our thesis. Oh, wow. So the way that we did that was we had to pick books that um, exemplified something that we were tackling in our manuscript okay. and analyze why those things worked and why we were attracted to those. Oh, wow. Um, so I wrote about a Maggie Stiefvater book. I wrote about um, The Outsiders. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wrote about a short story and now the name escapes me. But I had to like talk about found family was basically oh. what I was tackling, but by like picking apart each of those. Oh, I love um, that. <laughs> so that was um, something that in most programs I'll have you do between, it's usually in your second year between 
the first and second semester. So like okay. over Christmas break um, is usually when those things will be due. The thesis, on the other hand, yeah. is your um, it's your manuscript. Yeah. You know, the goal of an MFA program is that you walk away with um, a completed or partially completed work um, that's almost ready for publication. I should have said that. I, I That is the only other thing I knew okay. about MFAs was like, okay, at the very least, I would have possibly a finished manuscript and and the capacity to do it because i am as you said like in this bubble nothing else is a distraction it's deadlines which i like love deadlines <laughs> me too <laughs> yeah and like just like I, I accountability in a way that like i don't have now as someone who's just pursuing it on his own um is the truly when i look back and think about like should i have done it should i do it now is is something that is still very attractive to me is is the possibility of having the time to have a very close to complete manuscript. Right. And I think that's why a lot of people um, end up going into their MFA program later on. Yeah. Um, my my friend, and she won't mind that I'm talking about her, yeah. my friend who's going to school in New York right now, um, she was my colleague. And, you know, as as we were editing books after books after books, she she kind of said to me, like, do you ever have time to write? And I said, I have the time, but I just don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it was just one of those things, like I haven't written for pleasure in a long time. And she was like, I'm really considering like quitting my job and going into my MFA program and coming out with my poetry chapbook wow. that I've been Wanting putting off to do. for years. Yeah. yeah. And I was kind of like, go for it. Like, you yeah. know, if you can make it happen, make it happen. Um, I worked while I got my MFA degree, um, not full time, but I had like three part time jobs. Nice. Oh, so, so you were working full time. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of like I I was making money um, because yeah. I had to. But right. it, I did it. I was able to do it in a way that allowed me to focus Flexibility. on my classes. Yeah. So it, I think it is that... Um, it's different from getting your bachelor's where I feel like, I don't know if this was the culture on your campus, mm -hmm. but um, on my campus, you know, if you were kind of outside the traditional timeline for getting your bachelor's, um, people kind of side-eyed you. Like, why are you here? You know, yeah. what what are you doing here as a 40 or 50 year old? Yes. And like the rest of us are like in our like very early 20s. Early 20s. Yes. yes. I had a... Um... In in my undergrad, I had a a uh, fellow student who I loved. She was such a sweet, sweet soul. And she felt very insecure about the fact that she was in her 40s pursuing her um, creative writing degree. And we kind of were like, don't worry about that. Like, don't worry about that. And I, I feel... I is a reason why I I am I hesitate to do it now as someone who's no longer in his 20s I don't care about that but that like I would worry about feeling isolated right yeah. and that I will say that is something that's very different in an MFA program okay good it was actually that I was the oddball because I oh right and, and they did say my first year they were like you're the baby oh, wow so I was I was significantly younger I think I was at least five years younger than the next person okay um 
which was fine. Yeah, like, of course. It, it wasn't like they singled me out and they were like, oh, you don't know how to write or right. like whatever. Um, but it it was just a totally different attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, you had people coming from corporate careers. You had people coming from nonprofit careers. Um, you had people who had been publishing and like putting on stage plays for years. Mm. And they were right. just like, you know, I, I really want to be in an environment where I can sit down and, and just write this one thing. Um, and I did have a friend who that was his whole goal in the program. He's like, I know exactly what I want to write wow. and I'm here to write it. And that was his thesis. And then he got it published. No way. I think the year after we graduated, I think. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So he was like, I'm here to do a thing. And then he did the thing. I, did, I was yeah. just kind of like, I have no idea why I'm here. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm just showing up. Straight up vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I think that that is something that um, I really appreciated about the MFA yeah. program. Um, and oddly, a lot of lawyers. Okay. A I lot actually of lawyers. I was going to ask you that because that's the other advice. If you're an undergrad English student, I don't know if you heard this a lot, but I heard a lot like, well, consider law school. I was like, Why? And what about me screams law? But like a lot of English students t- decide to get a law degree and a lot of law students I've heard yes. go for their MFA in creative or in writing. And that is like, it was so strange to me <laughs> to see that, um, especially because my partner um, at that time, his track was going to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was studying the LSAT. He was he got his um, master's degree in public policy, but he was taking law classes from mm. the law school at his university at the same time. And he was like, "You should go to law school with me when you're done with your MFA." And I was like, "Absolutely not." <laughs> I love you, but no. <laughs> and he was like, "You don't even have to do the bar." Like, you... and I was like, "No." Then why would I do it? Well, I shouldn't say that. We have a contributor who has done that, and and um... oh yeah. It's it's brilliant. I just yes. I could not do it. Yeah, you guys should definitely pick up if you haven't already. Um, the January February issue. Yeah. We do have um an art a brilliant article yes. in there about um how going to law school can make you a better business savvy yes. writer. Yeah, and it's brilliant. I know this is a lot of information to take in, everybody. Um, I hope that this chat has answered some of your questions. But if it hasn't, don't worry about it. Michael and I are going to continue this conversation in our February episode, so stay tuned for part two. I am pleased to be here today with Susan Shapiro, an award-winning writer and professor who is the best-selling author and co-author of 17 books her family hates in eight different genres, including Unhooked, The Forgiveness Tour, Five Men Who Broke My Heart, Lighting Up, The Bosnia List, and her inspiring writing guide, The Byline Bible, which I had the pleasure of working on. She has freelanced for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, Salon, The New Yorker, and many, many more. She lives with her scriptwriter husband in Greenwich Village, where she has taught her popular instant gratification takes too long courses at the New School, New York University, Columbia University, and in private classes and seminars, which are now online. 
Susan Shapiro, welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. I'm thrilled to be talking to you today about your new writing guide, The Book Bible, How to Sell Your Manuscript No Matter What Genre Without Going Broke or Insane, which just got a starred review from Booklist. It's out January 4th, 2022 from Skyhorse Publishing. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I wanted to um, start off by telling us um, how a little bit about how this book came to be. What gave you the idea for it? Um, well, we did um, uh, Byline Bible, and that did well. And a lot of my students told me that they wish that I would do, well, a lot of my students sold short pieces that led to books. And so then they would ask a million questions about, uh, you know, what do I do next? How do I do this? And one of the biggest confusions I saw was trying to figure out what genre, what category of book someone would have, somebody new would have the best luck selling. And I do these lately, I've been doing these sell your book seminars online. And I find that people have, people are very confused by that. And actually Writer's Digest ran the, the piece which um, made it into the book, which was uh, genre fluidity. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that people don't really understand. And because I have this strange overview of, I've done 17 books in eight different genres. And so I have a good overview, um, an unusual overview. In fact, I used to think that I sort of came off like a, you know, literary dabbler with ADD because I kept switching <laughs> around. But it turns out that the one thing it's good for is when people throw out their ideas and we try to figure out which category. It's the one weird um, thing that I learned by screwing up so many genres and trying again and revising. And, you know, mm -hmm. so that was how it started, I think. Um, I was going to ask you about your genre hopping. Um, you in in chapter four of the book Bible, you talk about nonfiction book proposals, and you talk about positioning yourself as the author for the book that you're proposing and not sharing every detail of every writing success you've ever had. Um, you gave the example of not mentioning your books about addiction when proposing your co-authored books about Bosnia. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that, that idea and how you've been able to like consistently reinvent yourself as a writer? Um, yes. I mean, what's interesting is that um, I find it's a problem with my students um, even doing um, short pieces. So sometimes the newspaper editor, the magazine editor will say, do you want a bio? And they'll put a 74 line bio and it's just like, mm -hmm. you know, majored in philosophy and minored in psychology and went to Ohio State, but then went to graduate school in England and has traveled the world and is a motorcycle enthusiast. And I'm just like, why are you saying that? In fact, just recently, I just said to a student, just write, working on a book about, you know, traveling worldwide, like just one line. And interestingly, mm -hmm. I have a lot of students who have used a very short byline mentioning they're working on a book and then gotten a book deal or gotten literary agents or editors mm -hmm. to call them. So I feel like in general, writers do that a lot. I don't know why. I mean, maybe people in other fields do it too, but, you know, inside a book proposal, there might be room for several pages of your whole life story, especially if it's going to help you sell the book. But I find that um, selling a particular, one particular piece and selling a book you really just want to hone in on 
the exact information that's going to help you sell a book. And if you give the wrong information, it'll screw it up. That might lead the, you know, the history editor to think this is an unstable person, you know? So, <laughs> so a lot of times people just give way, you know, way too much, way wrong information. So I try to have my students hone in on what's your platform? Why should somebody say yes to this? And, um, and actually I have an editor who um, says to my um, students, all I want in a pitch is why you, why me, why now? So one of the things that I love about this book is that you start each chapter with a like, tongue-in-cheek funny list of what not to do for writing that kind of book. And I mean, number you identify literally the exact problems that I've seen most often um, with people who are trying to propose something and going about it the exact wrong way. <laughs> So I wondered, why did you choose to start each chapter that oh, way? I'm so glad that you said that. Okay, so so my goal with Byline Bible and with Book Bible is you never want to be boring. And sometimes when you're writing a guide with a lot of lists and a lot of um, service elements, you're, you know, do this, do that. It's boring. So I was trying to find a way to be more interesting. And I think I had actually maybe a while ago for Writer's Digest, I'd sort of written a what not to do kind of piece. And um, so I tried that. And interestingly, I have this really tough brilliant writing group and several people didn't like it and thought it was sarcastic or negative and what's interesting was there were five or six um, former students who were much younger than my brilliant editors and agents and all of them liked it immediately hmm. and I said and I asked them to explain why and they said because they saw themselves doing every single one yeah and also it made them laugh and mm -hmm. so the minute they could laugh and and sort of make fun of themselves then they liked me more so interestingly, the older the older people who had been who are sort of more traditional publisher publishing thought it was a little too sarcastic, obnoxious, you know, making fun of people. But when I saw all the young people, the younger the younger students, um, diverse younger students, actually, when they told me they liked it and they got it and they laughed and they saw themselves, that's when I knew I had to do it more because they're my audience. Mm hmm. You know, right. the audience that I want is, you know, I want people that have never done a, or, you know, or I think I'm going to have an audience of people who haven't done a book before and especially young people, because what happens is, you know, when you Google, you go to a bookstore, you could certainly get, you know, how to write a memoir, how to write a novel. Mm -hmm. um, but there there's there was no book that I could find that cross genres. Right. So I really wanted to put right. it together in the most helpful way imaginable. And I think there are specific problems with each genre. So for example, mm -hmm. kids books, because I have quite a few students who've done kids books, a really common thing a parent will do is, well, my kid loves this story, or I'm going to tell this story of when I grew up in 1978, you right. know, and so, so, <laughs> you know, so there were, and poetry, it's, you know, okay, I'm going to get an agent for my poetry and sell it to the New Yorker. And it's like, I don't think agents handle most poetry. And I don't think the New Yorker is the place to start. So each mm -hmm. genre people seem to have misconceptions about. So by the way, it made it really, it was very fun. It was the most fun to write. Mm -hmm. I think that's what appeals to me about your writing style is um, you don't really, you don't mince words, but it's humorous in a way that gets the point across while allowing people to like laugh at themselves without feeling bad about what they didn't know and what they've just learned. In this book, each of the chapters has so many examples of um, books that do the thing well that's being talked about in that chapter. How long did it take you to do the research for this book or did you just accumulate this knowledge over time? 
You know, on one hand, I'm lucky because I've been doing this for a lot, a lot, a lot of years, you know, and I was a book reviewer and for mm. many years. So um, in in some of the genres, I knew this stuff off the top of my head that my biggest problem was that some of my references were old. Mm. So I definitely wanted to update when possible. Um, the other thing that was great was I interviewed maybe 100 people for this book, editors and agents and authors. And so quite often they would add names to it. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have to have this one, you have to. And and I really did want it to be diverse. I was glad that Booklist said that. So for example, there was an LGBTQ author and I was like, okay, could you tell me some of your favorite, you know, favorite writers we should be looking at or, you know, a Latino journalist and a, a black best-selling, best-selling author um, whose work I admired. And, um, you know, so I really was trying to get the widest range of examples I could um, especially now in the publishing industry, you know, thank God the publishing industry has finally decided mm -hmm. they seem to figure out that diversity is a good way to go. Right. So, um, so I was trying to be as all inclusive as possible. Um, it didn't take a long time to research cause I loved, you know, it's so much fun. I just love mm -hmm. doing it. Um, you know, so, so, you know, it's very fun to, um, for me to ask a lot of editors and agents if they could recommend, or my writing group would, would, you know, add, you know, and there were really funny arguments because is it, you know, is it, is it a cozy mystery? Is it a thriller? Is it crime? You know, mm -hmm. so, so I had to go to experts and I think I have a disclaimer at one point, which is I'm just, I'm trying to categorize, but there's so many things that cross genres, but, uh, but it was that great line about, um, if you love what you do, you never have to work a, a day yeah. in your life. Yeah. So really there's so much fun. And, and, and by the way, there's nothing I, there's nothing else I've thought about for basically 40 years. So, you know, how can I get published? How can I make this better? Mm -hmm. how, what would the editor say yes to, you know, so, so it is, it is kind of fun. It was kind of fun to um, obsess about it. Well, so if you have been thinking about this for 40 years and accumulating this, this knowledge, um, as you were interviewing those hundred people or the experts that you include in, um, in each of the chapters, which which type of book or writing style did you learn the most about while you were interviewing them? Well, interestingly, I just did my first um, co-authored middle grade book. Oh. So I have a ton of students who have published great middle grade YA um, picture books, but it wasn't a genre that I knew much about. And I basically had a crash course in trying to figure it out. And it took me a long time um, because so I did the Bosnia list with Kenneth Jabinsevic, and he did a piece for Newsday um, about what happened when his family, um, his his Bosnian Muslim family escaped ethnic cleansing and came to America. And there was a council of um, synagogues and churches in Connecticut that saved his family. And he did a short piece on it. And um, a former student who's a kids book editor said, this is this would make an amazing middle grade memoir. So I'm like, what's a middle grade memoir? So it took me, a, it took us a long time to figure out from start to finish. I think it was five years because uh -huh. not only do you have to understand that kids books are a completely different genre, but there's a huge difference between middle grade and YA. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge difference between um, middle grade memoir versus middle grade novel. And finally the editor who had published a, a similar book based on an immigrant true story decided to call it based on a true story and call it a novel, but it took me mm -hmm. so long to figure out. And I always say you should read the book you wanted to write and teach the class you had wanted to take. And so basically this was 
the book that I wish I would have had a long mm -hmm. time ago because it just took me so long to figure out each genre, even poetry. You know, I, I uh, you know, I moved to New York to get my graduate degree in poetry, and it took me a good ten years to like figure out that I'll never make any money in poetry. <laughs> that as much as I loved it, that you know, there were I was just going about it the wrong way with unrealistic expectations. Yeah. So I really wanted a, you know, a 17 or 18 or 20 year old to, or someone from a different field to just pick up a book and really just get a overview of what's doable, what's not doable, what's the time frame, what's, mm -hmm. what's the reality in this genre. So that, that's what I was hoping for. Well, and I think so many people do want to write in so many or have ideas for so many different genres and, um, you know, so having all of the information for all of those different kinds of books in one comprehensive um you know book itself was a really smart choice and i think it helps like you said if you if you are writing something and it morphs as you are drafting to something different this will give you an idea of how you can position it better um so that you have a, a more realistic opportunity to thank to you and it. also truthfully there's you know if you spend five years getting rejected, do something mm -hmm. else, you know? So right. a very, like just for an example, a really common thing I'm seeing right now in my online, the sell your book uh, students is memoir is a hard sell at this particular moment. Hmm. Really? And maybe there were earlier times, for example, with I did humorous memoirs, five minute broke my heart, lighting up how I stopped smoking, drinking and everything else I loved in life except sex. So there was <laughs> a point when it was easier to sell a humorous memoir. Um, these days it's much harder. And I think that the, from what I'm hearing from a lot of the editors and a agents who zoom into my class, maybe part of it was the pandemic. Maybe part of it was the books that are really doing well are very dramatic. So you have educated and made and hillbilly elegy mm -hmm. and memorial drive. So you have books that are really, really high concept, dramatic, intense stories. So I was depressed and went on antidepressants and broke up with my mate isn't going to really cut it if you, you know, if you're not right. famous. Um, so I knew a lot of authors who felt sort of heartbroken that here we've spent a lot of time either on a proposal or a memoir proposal or a memoir um, manuscript. And, you know, after two years or five years or 10 years with everything else going for you and you know, you're in love with your story, what do you do? Do you give up? And so in several cases, protégés and people from my writing groups and classes were able to re to, to take what they did, which was a first person memoir and um, rethink it a little bit to make it publishable. In fact, that happened to me several times. So I knew how to do it. So, for example, the book that actually introduced me to Writer's Digest was I wrote a book called um, Only As Good As Your Word, Writing Lessons for My Favorite Literary mm -hmm. Gurus. And it originally started as straight memoir called Lies My Mentors Told Me. And nobody would buy it. And I was told it was a leaden title. And when I asked, they said it wasn't commercial. And when I said, why not? They said, because it's eight profiles of old people and three of them are dead. And they're just like, <laughs> not going to happen. Okay. And I was trying to figure out what to do. And luckily, I met a great editor um, from a smaller press who understood what I was trying to do. And she said, why don't you make this like, a, um, you know, a service book for writers so that um, add more takeaways and an introduction and an end, how to get mentors to your own. And that way we know who the audience is. So I did that. So that felt miraculous. And it, it breathed life into that book. And actually, it, it introduced me to an editor at, at Writer's Digest who hired me um, for a long time. 
So that happened, that kept happening. And, it, and what happened was it would take a lot of analyzing and asking editors and agents and, and asking my writing group to sort of stumble on what genre might work. And nobody really mm-hmm. talks about that. But anyway, so that, that, that happened with several students of mine and several people. Uh, Amy Klein, who was in my writing group, was writing great infertility pieces for the New York Times and didn't have luck with a memoir about her infertility, but she had great luck selling this fantastic book called The Trying Game to Random House <laughs> for Six Figures. And that was where you help other women who were going through infertility so she could use her first person story, but just added research. And that was a huge success. And another former student, Laura Zam, had a book called The Pleasure Plan. And, and again, it was, so after you've been through sexual abuse, how do you enjoy sex? And by making it mm-hmm. into a service, more service oriented, she found a great um, editor, agent and audience. So that happens a lot. So, you know, so that's a really good thing for people to think about, because what it means is that just because your memoir doesn't sell doesn't mean it's over. If you're if you could be a little bit flexible and figure out who might be the audience or how could you rework it. And some of my memoirs that sold, we're talking a month of work to to be able to get a great publisher and have Mm -hmm. and, and breathe life into a project that I thought was dead. Well, this episode is all about beginnings because it is our first um, podcast episode and it's coming out in January, the beginning of a new year. So um, I wonder, do you have a couple tips that you would offer to someone who wanted to start working toward their their first byline or their first book in, in 2022? Sure. Well, first off, Read what you want to be writing. You can't write in a vacuum. If you want to write, if you want to write a novel, go out. You know, be a good literary citizen. Buy books. Buy and by the way, don't buy Stephen King. Buy debut authors right. who are trying. You know, who are just breaking out in small presses or you know. So read what you want to be writing. That's really important. And it's the same thing with newspapers and magazines. And by the way, if you want to write for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or Oprah Magazine or Cosmo, buy them. You buy right. them. How are you going to make money if you're getting them for free? It's like a karma thing, you know, so read what you want to be writing. If you could afford it, be a good literary citizen and, and you know, um, help help the genre, help the field in general by being a patron, being a good patron. And by the way, go to book events, go mm-hmm. to bookstores or there won't be any bookstores. Go to book events. So th- so I think that there's a whole karma thing that happens there. Um, number one. Number two, in terms of a book, I always say and it, it, interestingly, it it helps um it's great that that we did byline bible because the best way to publish a book is to write three brilliant pages and it's a million times easier to write three pages than it is 300 pages and if you can't write three pages and get it published chances are it's not a book then you know so a lot of that's really a very good way Mm -hmm. to try to launch it because if you launch it that means you have to somebody has to come up with a title a subtitle who's your audience where are you going to pitch it telling a story that's engaging. And so that's really a great way to start because it'll tell you a lot. And and sometimes people start with a piece and they didn't even realize, uh, you know, it'll it'll hit a nerve and then literary agents and editors will call them. Right. Yeah. And of yeah. course, read uh, read Byline Bible and Book Bible first. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, they're... And Writer's Digest, by the way. I love Writer's Digest. You guys <laughs> I love Writer's really Digest too. Such great information. Well, I think so do your books. They really are so very comprehensive. Um, you are very generous with your knowledge and what you have learned. Um, and you. again, I like the way that you present it in a in a way that is entertaining. And we like I can hear your voice in my head when I'm whenever I'm reading them. 
um, which I think is fantastic. So my students say that they always tell me like they could hear too many words, you know, or, uh, (laughs) or, uh, um, start timely. Why are you starting so old? You know? Yeah. So yeah. Little (laughs) suisms. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I hope hope everyone picks up a copy of, um, of the book Bible and of course the byline Bible too. So I'm partial to that one. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you're able to join us. Thank you. Me too. We will close out each episode of the podcast by sharing a writing prompt related to our episode theme. Here's this month's prompt. Introduce your character to a new hobby. How do they learn the hobby? What intrigues them about it? Are they a natural from the beginning or do they have to work at it to become somewhat good at it? What does it teach them or you about who they are? Or if you write nonfiction, replace the character with yourself. Thanks for listening to Writer's Digest Presents. Join us next month when we'll be talking about Flash Fiction February. Until then, you can find book recommendations from the WD staff at bookshop.org slash shop slash Writer's Digest. And visit writersdigest.com for more writing prompts, advice, and inspiration. You can always email us at writers.digest at aimmedia.com. There are two M's in there. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Happy writing. Thank you.